Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. My name is Kevin Fulta. And this is the Talking Biotech Podcast. I've been a professor at the University of Florida for 16 years, and I'm very interested in how light controls the way plants grow and behave. We're also very interested in the way that different fruits and vegetables taste, and the genes that contribute to that sensory experience. We're interested in identifying novel molecules that may be important regulators of plant growth and development. And going forward, we're hoping to identify new molecules that may be the next generation of plant protection agents, maybe new herbicides, maybe even new antibiotics. We're doing all of this work mostly funded by public money, with very small amounts here and there from industry, but particularly the strawberry industry here in Florida. The Talking Biotech podcast was an idea of mine I started back in June of 2015, and this is after... I was told, well, you should be doing a podcast. You have a a gift of being able to make complicated topics very simple. I started the podcast back then reluctantly. I didn't need another thing on my plate, and I certainly don't get excited about having some sort of a spotlight. I don't necessarily need a place where I'm uh, directly interacting with the public in this particular way. Yeah, I do a lot of talks and workshops and things, but... um, don't feel like being a presence in this kind of media was something I wanted to do. But nonetheless, the response has been very good. And now we're going into our fourth year. Well, we will be going into our fourth year. We're actually, we're in our fourth year. We're about to complete four years in June. But we started in 2015. And today we're rolling over into 2019. Now, I usually don't timestamp these episodes. I don't like to say, well, it's uh, going on the end of the year, and you know, I, I try to make these episodes stand on their own. And the idea is is to provide the listener or somebody who's maybe scrolling through all of the episodes almost a buffet of information where they can reach in and find something that they feel uh, they want to know more about. And when they listen to that episode, they feel that it's the most new and contemporary information. Now, that's good. The problem is, is that this information always changes so fast. So to complete the year of 2018, we're actually going to go backwards and then go forwards. I'm featuring talks from two prominent scientists, with each has an important topic that covers some aspect of biotechnology and really how it can serve people and the planet, which is kind of the tagline of the show. These are two stories I want you to know about. 
And the reason is, is because they check all the boxes of sustainability. How do they help people, especially the poorest farmers in the world, have safer cultivation and better prices that improve their lives? How can we make ecological differences by using biotechnology to enhance, or in this case, restore in really what is a very um, conservation-minded effort? We'll talk about both of these episodes with uh, the respective scientists. First, Dr. Tony Shelton from Cornell University will update us on the BT Beringel, the eggplant in Bangladesh. After that, we'll talk to Dr. Bill Powell from the State University of New York. He's going to be talking to us about the Transgenic American Chestnut Project and where that stands. Overall, these are two outstanding examples that when people want to talk about biotechnology, don't focus on Roundup Ready alfalfa and you know BT corn. Talk about the BT brinjal. Talk about the restoration and conservation possibilities. Talk about the papaya and how it rescued an industry in, in Hawaii. Talk about insulin, growth hormone, artemisins, as such as we've had on earlier episodes here. These are all examples of where we can use technology in very good ways to solve problems for people. It's not big companies. These are individual researchers that see a need and then use technology to meet that need. So here we go with today's podcast. And on this section of the podcast, we go back to Talking Biotech podcast number 48 from August of 2016. It was the last time we spoke with Dr. Tony Sheldon about eggplants, and more precisely about the BT brinjal in Bangladesh. And Dr. Sheldon is the International Professor of Entomology at Cornell University. Welcome back, Tony. Great. Thanks. Good to be back. Yeah, it's re- I appreciate you being uh, back with us here today. If you could remind us of what exactly this innovation was and when it first reached the field. Okay, this is a basically an eggplant that was introduced into Bangladesh in 2014. The eggplant expresses a protein from bacterium called Bt. Organic growers use Bt; they've sprayed it for years, but to actually really make it effective if it's introduced so that into a plant in a plant's genome so it's producing these bacterial proteins it works incredibly well um, and this BT, these BT plants are used widely I think probably about 85 or 90 percent of all the field corn in the US is actually uh, insect protected because of the introduction of BT into the genome. In, in Bangladesh, um, everyone eats eggplant <laughs> um, at least once a day. And there is a particular insect, it's a caterpillar insect, that attacks eggplant, or as they call it in Bangladesh, brinjal. And so farmers routinely spray two to three times a week and add up to over 100 sprays during the season. So. BT eggplant was introduced into Bangladesh in a project funded by USAID uh, with cooperation from Cornell University and uh, Maiko, which is an Indian seed company. And it's revolutionized brinjal uh, production in Bangladesh. 
Now, back when we last spoke, it was only on a limited number of farms. I probably, I, I don't remember the exact number, but you had suggested back then that it was replacing a lot of really nasty um, old school herbs, or I'm sorry, insecticides, things like um, organophosphates and carbamates and things. So where were we about that time uh, relative to the technology and its deployment? Okay. Um, in 2014, uh, Bangladesh became the first country in the world to allow the production of BT eggplant. And that was with 20 farmers. This year, 2018, we have 27,000 farmers adopting it. And when I travel and talk with these farmers in their fields, the insecticide use has gone from maybe 100 sprays during the season down to as low as two sprays, 98% reduction. So a remarkable, remarkable uh, achievement just by introducing a BT eggplant. And farmers are getting about six-fold higher prices uh, or profit from growing BT brinjal. Uh, studies that we've conducted in Bangladesh have indicated that there's no effect on uh, the, the uh, natural enemies or any of the biodiversity. Um, sprays go down, profits go up. Um, it's a win-win situation for everyone. That's really exciting. I remember talking to you about the time about this at the time, and it really is a great innovation. And where is it going next? I've heard some things about the Philippines, and uh, you know, maybe even it being smuggled into India. These kinds of stories. Where does it really sit with its current deployment? Well, right now, it's only legally produced in Bangladesh. Um, we're working with the Philippine uh, University of the Philippines at Los Banos, who will be submitting a regulatory package to get it approved in the Philippines. We will ha uh, be submitting that uh, this next year. So hopefully, I mean, the Philippines suffers the same problems with this eggplant fruit and shoot borer, where farmers are repeatedly spraying. So if it's introduced into the Philippines, this will be a tremendous benefit to resource poor farmers in that country. They've already done uh, field trials um, in the Philippines, but it's not been commercialized. The field trials show that it gives, BT eggplant gives virtually 100% control of this damaging insect. And so if that's actually deployed there, is that something that looks like 2019, perhaps? And, and where, where else is it being trialed? As far as 2019 in the Philippines, the uh, regulatory package will be submitted. We will have to wait and see um, how quickly it'll go through. As far as other countries, you know, it was uh, blocked. There's a moratorium on it in India that was instituted in 2010. Uh, just due to uh, uh, the pressure from anti-biotech uh, groups. And I think uh, India might feel a little embarrassed that their neighbor, Bangladesh, has adopted it so quickly. And it's been such a tremendous benefit to the farmers in Bangladesh. Maybe maybe India will rethink their moratorium. But right now, it's it's uh, not allowed in in India. We expect we expect that once it, um, you know, a few few more years of uh, 
the deployment in Bangladesh and other countries throughout Southeast Asia will want this technology. And, and these are seeds that are um, freely distributed by farmers to other farmers, right? I mean, you can buy them from the company, but you also are free to distribute them. Is that kind of how this one works? So it's op- it's they're open pollinated lines, so farmers can save seed and uh, and trade the seed, and, and they do that. It's a little bit hard for us to uh, know exactly how many how many uh, of those farmers are actually saving the seed, but we expect that it's several several thousand. Um, we would also like to see uh, hybrid uh, BT brinjal eggplant being introduced in Bangladesh because most all farmers want to have hybrid uh, plants. Hybrids. Uh, you know, you cannot save the seed for that, but the hybrids do uh, yield better, um, and farmers throughout the world want to have access to hybrid seeds. But right now, the technology is open pollinated, and uh, again, in 2014, we had 20 farmers. Now we have 27,000 farmers. So obviously the farmers see the benefits of using this BT. It's, it's really exciting and really a success story. And it's a hard one for people to push back against because of the fact that seeds are freely distributed and it's working so well. And it's limiting environmental impact and human exposure to old school insecticides. But there still is a lot of rumbling online when you read about this, about how it's, uh, you know, it's failing and it doesn't work. And how much uh, validity is there to any of the criticisms? And uh, are there uh, more criticisms that are holding back deployments, say, in other places like the Philippines? So there are certainly groups that are against any biotechnology, regardless of how well it works. But for Farmers are pretty smart people, and uh, when they see their neighbors uh, not having to spray so much, um, they will ask, "What? What's that? What are you doing?" When the farmer says that he has this BT uh, brinjal, farmers will say, "Can I get some?" I went to a, a farmer field uh, day. This was a, uh, several mon- months ago, and it was amazing when we asked the farmers who like to adopt this technology next year every uh, every hand in the audience went up so um the genie is out of the box out of the bottle in in bangladesh and i don't see that it can it can turn back the 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 technology uh, is working incredibly well the seeds are given out for free, or farmers can buy them from another Bangladesh uh, institute uh, for just a matter of very small amount of money. But uh, right now, the the main problem is trying to get enough seed to satisfy the the, the demand by the growers. And it's interesting too. In in Bangladesh, there was just a there's an upcoming election in December, and in that election, uh, one of the parties, the party in power right now, said that they believe in biotechnology, they want to move forward. The Minister of Agriculture is on record as saying, you know, we uh, we need biotechnology, 
and a project like the BT Eggplant Project, which is an international cooperative effort between Bangladesh, USAID, Cornell, and a, and a seed company. She said this is just the perfect example of how we should move forward in Bangladesh to help our food security. Well, what are the next steps and where can people read more about this? Well, there's a paper that we published uh, a few months ago in, in the journal Frontiers. Um, and I think the title of it is Past, Present, and Future of BT Brinjal in Bangladesh. Um, they can go online. Um, I don't know if you have it on your website, uh, but it is an article that describes you know, the status, the current status right now. That's perfect. And we'll, I'll go ahead and link that article to the website. I, I really love this particular story because I do believe that this may be one of the turning points that we've always been looking for because it's, it's a, it's a story that, uh, checks all the boxes of the good ways that this technology can be used. And, you know, I appreciate it very much. And I really think that, uh, Time will be extremely kind to these efforts and we'll remember them very well as, as innovations that really help people obtain food security. So thank you for joining me today. I really appreciate it and look forward to talking to you again soon. Okay, thanks very much, Kevin. And in the bridge portion of today's podcast, I really would like to make an urgent plea for you to go over to Patreon and subscribe to No Ideas Media. So they don't have any direct affiliation with this podcast, other than the fact that I know the filmmaker, Nick Syke, and think he's a really talented guy who's doing great things for agriculture and for science. He's using his expertise as a filmmaker to share the stories of agriculture and science. If you look at his videos um, on a couple of different websites, but if you Google No Ideas Media, K-N-O-W, Ideas Media, you'll find a tremendous wealth of resources that reflect his talents catchy videos, which are exactly what we should be producing. Video is the best format to relay these messages, and not just to talk scientist to scientist, farmer to farmer, but to reach the masses of people that are willing to sit down and at least entertain a short, entertaining video. Now this is an exciting opportunity for us to be able to support Nick, who is doing this on a shoestring of a budget with a small crew of people. The Patreon account over at patreon.com forward slash no ideas media that's k-n-o-w ideas media donate for a dollar a month five dollars a month maybe ten dollars twenty dollars a month i'm in for twenty the idea is is to support nick and his team to continue to share our stories and share our messages so this podcast i don't have any sponsorship i don't make you listen to commercials but this is one that i hope you will certainly um get excited about. It's an opportunity to support somebody who's working very hard at sharing the ideas of science. This is how he makes a living. And I think it's a good time for all of us to help him out. Thank you. And on this part of the Talking Biotech podcast, we go back to talk to one of the people who were first interviewed way back in 2015. And we go to the State University of New York, College of Environmental Science and forestry. We're talking with Professor Bill Powell. He's the director of the American Chestnut Research and Restoration Project and has been working on a project for a few years now to bring back the American chestnut. So uh, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Powell. Thank you. 
Um, so uh, you're bringing it back. Where did it go? Well, you know, at one time, the American chestnut was one of the more common trees in the eastern uh, Appalachian forests. Um, and uh, it was very important uh, agriculturally for the uh, subsistence farmers. Uh, it was very important to the ecosystem for wildlife. And it actually had a, a social aspect to it. Um, this time of year, you always hear chestnuts roasting on the open fire. Well, they're talking about American chestnuts. Um, so it was a very important tree. Uh, about a century ago, um, people started importing Asian chestnut trees. And at that time, they didn't realize when they bring over these trees, they're also bringing over all the microbes on these trees. And it turns out there was a fungus that was brought over that jumped off the Asian chestnut trees onto the American chestnut that was devastating. This fungus uh, colonizes wounds, a form of canker, which will girdle the tree and eventually kill it down to the ground. Um, this light was originally introduced here uh, in New York at um, the New York Harbor and uh, spread through the uh, whole population of around three to four billion of the largest trees in the eastern forests um, in about 50 years time, uh, pretty much wiping them out. Uh, and uh, they're now still surviving, though, because they can survive at the roots. And that gives us an opportunity to actually bring the species back because there's still enough genetic diversity out there that um, they can recover if we can get some resistance to this blight uh, into the trees. And so what was the solution that you proposed that's uh, currently being, well, starting to be implemented? So we, we actually looked at lots of different genes, uh, but the one that seems to work best is one that comes from wheat. It encodes an enzyme called oxalate oxidase. And the reason why this works so well is that the fungus, the pathogen, uh, the way it attacks a tree is to make uh, oxalate or oxalic acid. And this actually kills the tr cells of the tree. And so by adding this gene in from wheat to the chestnut, it can now make this enzyme that detoxifies that acid. And therefore, the fungus and the tree now can coexist. We call these light tolerant trees because we actually don't kill the fungus. All we're doing is neutralizing this acid and the trees can survive in the presence of the fungus. And that is important evolutionarily because it gives you much more sustainable resistance because you're not putting a lot of selective pressure on the pathogen to overcome that type of resistance. I see. And so where has the technology been in development? I mean, how long have you been working on this? And really, where is it right now? Okay. So we've been actually working on it since the uh, about 1990. So quite a few years, about over 28 years now. And... Um, where we are right now is that uh, probably in the last podcast that we had, we told you that we actually had trees that were as resistant and maybe even a little bit more than the, our Chinese chestnut controls because Chinese chestnut is where the blight comes from and they are naturally resistant. Um, and uh, But at that time, we were just getting ready to go through the federal regulatory process, uh, which we have to uh, work with the uh, USDA, the EPA, and the FDA before we can actually plant our trees out and give them out to the public. Um, or we actually can plant them out in research plots under permits, but get them out where they can be freely distributed. Uh, so, so we are in that process right now. Um, over the past uh, three years or so, we've been doing lots of different environmental impact statements, or statements, not impact um, experiments. And uh, for example, a couple just got published. One was where we took leaf litter from the American chestnut and fed it to wood frog uh, tadpoles. 
And the idea there is that, you know, these tadpoles are going to be exposed if this tree comes back to the American chestnut, just like it was before the blight. And so we compared our transgenic trees with the oxidase gene and wild type trees. And it turns out no difference. This is as we expected. Uh, one of the kind of interesting sidelines from that experiment, because we also tested things like uh, sugar maple and um, American beech and some other trees. And uh, one of the things that we found out, at least in a preliminary experiment, that actually these wood frogs tend to like the American chestnut better than the other control trees that we used. So that was kind of interesting. But we're doing all kinds of tests. We're testing things like uh, mycorrhizal uh, colonization. Mycorrhizae are the good fungi that um, trees rely on to uh, help take up nutrients from the soil. And um, so we're looking at that make sure there's no differences between our transgenic trees and the wild-type trees. And again, we're not seeing any difference there. Uh, looking at things like allopathy on uh, seed germination, not seeing any differences between our tree and the wild-type tree. We're doing, you know, things like um, looking at where the gene goes in. And uh, actually just recently uh, at uh, Hudson Alpha, we've had the American chestnut genome sequenced. And um, so we're working with them to, to um, uh, get this ready for annotation. Uh, the Chinese chestnut has already been done. And we can actually locate where the genes go in and make sure that our events that we're going through the regulatory process are not inserted into some other gene, knocking it out, which it is not. And also making sure it's not having an effect on nearby genes, which it is not. Um, so we're doing all kinds of tests like that just to uh, satisfy uh, the regulatory process. And, and that's pretty much where we are right now. Well, that's really exciting. So the um, all of this is moving forward. And so what are really the next steps in regulatory? And when might this kind of technology actually be deployed? So it's, it's always hard to predict exactly what time. Um, but from our interactions with the regulators, uh, we think with the USDA, we could have an answer in about 18 months from now. We already sent in what's called a, a, a completeness check of our document and got some feedback from them. And now we're redoing that um, so that it's in a, a format that they can review. And we're hoping to submit that by the end of January. And according to their timeline, they'll have an open comment period where we'll hopefully get a lot of good comments in from the public uh, about these trees and... Um, then they'll go through their environmental impact statements and so on and so forth. And we think we can get an answer in 18 months. Now we also have to work with the FDA. Um, the FDA normally would be quicker because the questions they're asking are actually much more narrow. They're mainly interested in the nuts themselves. And uh, we're doing all kinds of tests. We've done nutrient tests. We're getting ready to do some tannin tests on, on the nuts to show that there's no difference. We're not finding any differences. So we're going to have to work with them also. Um, they Last time we talked to them, they said that maybe 18 months is the, is the uh, duration for their review right now. Um, and then we also are working with the EPA. And the EPA is kind of an interesting question because we were very careful on which gene we selected. Um, the EPA regulates transgenic uh, crops and, and plants because of um, any pesticidal activity. And our, our gene doesn't have any. Uh, so the question is, do they really regulate us? And we're, we've been talking with them for many, many months now. We're trying to figure out, well, do they actually regulate us or not? Because we're not actually harming the fungus. Um, we're just removing this acid. And it's interesting, this acid, oxalic acid, is actually a pesticide itself. And so how can a gene that de degrades the pesticide also be considered a pesticide? So those are the kind of questions where you are dealing with them right now. And we're going to figure out 
you know, what's the best way forward um, from this point on. So what's the big picture? If we look at this in terms of a timeline of, you know, you get the regulatory approval, then it just begins because how do you incorporate that transgene into the broader um, diversity of chestnut populations? Yeah, that's an excellent question. And we've been considering this for uh, a long time now. Um, again, we'll start off with our uh, transgenic line that gets approved by the regulators. Um, it has low diversity, but we're working very closely with the American Chestnut Foundation um, in a breeding program, which we actually have started now. We, just, we can begin it on our, our permanent plots, uh, where we take our trees and we outcross it to surviving wild mother trees. And what that does, it dilutes down the founder effect as well as brings into the population the diversity that's still surviving out there, as well as the local adaptations. Um, so we have a plan uh, with the American Chestnut Foundation to work this out over the next uh, number of years. And the trees that we pass out, um, initially, uh, they'll probably be like uh, second generation outcrosses, but each year there'll be more and more outcrosses uh, um, to increase the diversity of that population for restoration. Well, that's really exciting. I'm excited to hear that this project's been going. It's been one of my personal favorites for a long time and why it was uh, prominently featured as one of our first ones, you know, all being three and a half years ago now. But, you know, wish you all the luck in the world. If people want to learn more about the project or even can donate to the project, is there a place to do that? Yes, you can actually come to our uh, our website, our our university website. It's basically uh, www.esf.com. Dot edu and then slash chestnut. It's very simple. And that will get you to our website. There's actually a place on there. If you want to donate, you can click onto that. Uh, the other thing I would suggest is um, the restoration is going to be um, dependent a lot on the American Chestnut Foundation. And I would suggest people to join them also. Okay. That sounds really good. Well, thank you very much for joining us and best wishes in the future. And please check in if there's anything we need to know about. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. the BT Brinjal and the American Chestnut. These are two examples of how biotechnology can have profound impacts on the poorest people in the world and aid in conservation efforts. And these are important messages for us to be able to share and have ready to go next time somebody asks about why you support a technology that only benefits the giant food companies. Here's an opportunity for us to talk to people about the good things that we can do with technology. In 2019, there's going to be some changes. And even though I haven't made any final decisions, I think there's a little change of gears in mind. Back when I started this podcast in June of 2015, there weren't that many podcasts out there. And when I look at the numbers, I see that our numbers are slowly declining simply because there's so much good content out there. And it's not that we're doing something that's bad, it's just that we're doing something in a sea of good. (laughs) And I think we're losing some impact. I think there are ways to get that back by doing something a little bit different. So, while the Talking Biotech podcast may top out somewhere around episode 200, and maybe we'll have sporadic updates, there will be new kinds of media that will be more exciting, much more fun, and something that I think will be of wider interest to people who we need to reach, the people who don't know what to trust. I think that this will be a much more effective use of our time and will help us tremendously in sharing the ideas of science. At this time of year, it's important that we be grateful for the people who feed us and think about the farmers 
Think about the people who do the harvesting and the labor in the fields. Think about the people in the supply chains who make sure that we have food coming to our tables that's safe and nutritious. Think about the scientists. Hey, <laughs> I pat myself on the back while I'm at it. Now, the, the, the folks who I work with are the most amazing scientists in the world who are all very dedicated to improving food and improving ecological situations here on the planet. It really is different than what the critics say. And something I'm really proud of because over the life of this podcast, I think we're seeing some change in the public perception. And that's because of listeners like you that pay attention to these topics and share them with your friends and family. It might also be because things like this podcast maybe do make a difference. That makes me pretty happy. So we'll close the year of 2018 with a tremendous library of 52 new episodes that I think are really fun. Not because of the host, but because of the incredible guests. Thank you very, very much for listening, and I hope you'll continue to listen in 2019. Thank you again for listening. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review of this podcast on iTunes and recommend it to a friend. More downloads help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.